are going to be continuing through 1 Peter this morning. I think it is our second to last week in 1 Peter. Uh, Christopher, Christopher always seems to take off when there's a passage that has to do with suffering. So <laughs> He's like, the perfect time for vacation. Jason's got this. I was looking through some of my past notes, and I was like, oh, this I talked about suffering here. I talked about suffering here. There's pain here and pain here. All right. Well, well uh, God must want me to talk about suffering. So we're, we're going to be talking through trials of pain and suffering. And we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. So we're going to be starting with uh, verses 12 through 16, quite a big chunk here called fiery trial. So he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So we're going to be reading through this passage, and, and we come to an interesting dilemma, or, or actually a trilemma. I know, fancy word. But this is a this is a trilemma that's existed for quite some time. There's an, an old philosopher a few hundred years before Jesus named Epicurus who came up with this, uh, this kind of all-encompassing trilemma about good and evil and suffering. He says, if God is unable to prevent evil, then he's not all-powerful. If God is not willing to prevent evil, then he's not all-good. And if God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why does evil exist? So he comes, he poses this as an issue put before us, and of course, we're not going to solve these questions right now. I'm not, I don't claim to be smarter than Epicurus, but uh, we're going to be taking a look at what the Bible says about good and evil and suffering. Like this is kind of that age-old problem, can God make a hot dog so hot that he can't eat it, right? Like that whole thing. A little bit more complicated than that. So, uh, if, if God is, is able to prevent evil, then why does he allow it to exist? So, first off, let's all agree on this, that people hate pain, right? We hate pain. We don't like it. We try to avoid it. And when we believe in God and experience suffering, we want to believe that suffering is contrary to the story of God. We want to believe that it's all opposed to the story of God and it comes in exception to the Bible, but it's actually core to the story of Bible, the Bible. Evil and suffering is, is core to the story of, of the Bible, of, of the gospel message. The Bible, it doesn't avoid pain and suffering and evil. We look at some, some people in the, in the Bible, some of these these heroes of the faith, we look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet because he talks about Israel. He was called to be a prophet to Israel, but he never saw Israel change. He only saw Israel 
kind of heap on more and more suffering. And he's crying out to God like, God, why won't they listen to me? They just keep going after everything that's not you, this, this, this sinful life, the, the life that's going to destroy them, and he watches them just fall into destruction, fall into a split, fall into oppression. Or we have Joseph, who, whose own family turned against him. Right? His whole story, we look at the story at the ending, but look at the, the story as a whole life. If that was your life, you'd think, well, God, where are you? My whole life is just depicted by this suffering. Or we see David, and David's called a man after God's own heart, and we see what he's written in the Psalms, and the guy was just destitute all the time, saying, God, where are you amidst all this mess? Where are you when all of this stuff is happening? And then we see another uh, psalmist, he's a poet, his name's Asaph. And so Asaph has 12 different psalms attributed to him, and he was a, he was a poet and a, and a singer, he led uh, the, the tabernacle choir, and so he you know, was like the worship leader kind of guy. And uh, we read in Psalm 73, him complaining to God. He says, therefore, their people turn to, the, turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Do you ever feel this way? He's saying that there's all these people, they don't follow God. They don't listen to God's commandments. And here they are, it seems like they're just living life without any issues. He's like, I have a new issue every single morning. I have new sufferings every single day, and God doesn't take care of them. Do, do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, man, you know, I, I believe and I trust in God, but then here's my cousin. He, he hates everything about Christians. He, he openly mocks them, and yet everything that he touches turns to gold. Meanwhile, I... I don't even have a job, or God, I, I've remained faithful to you, yet my, my spouse left me? Why is it that, that everyone else around me, they get people that are close to them, they get people that encourage them, they have a tight community, and yet I have no one else around me. I'm all alone. God, why do you let these people who abhor you have good health and wealth while I just walk, rot away? All these people, they drink up abundance while I have a new affliction every morning. God, why? Like, what's your plan here? Might lead us to the question, why does a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? And the reality is this, that if love is a choice, then pain is a possibility. If love is a choice, then pain is a possibility. If you have the ability to love, then you have the ability to hate. If you have the capacity to choose and do good, you have the same capacity to do evil. 
Because the only way if there's a, if the only way that there's a real choice is if there's multiple outcomes, both desirable and undesirable. Undesirable. There's a, a parenting hack that uh, that Stacy and I have have learned from people, and it's actually in that that whole training thing called Love and Logic, uh, and. It, it, it talks about these choices that we give our kids. And it says that uh, when, it, when it comes to choices for our kids, they say it's good and healthy to give them choices. And to be able to give them the opportunity to practice choices and, and uh, go through life being able to make choices and give them, give them the tools to figure out what they want and how to accomplish that and all that. So it says to do that whenever you can and to frame even even easy decisions as a choice for them. So one classic example, so you, you give them two choices. So one that, that they're able to control and one that ultimately you're able to control if they choose something different. So the classic example that we give Dean every single day is uh, his, his room's downstairs and when it's bedtime, I say, well, all right, well, Dean, do you want me to carry you or do you want to walk? And... A lot of times he chooses to walk. You give him a choice that, well, both things are fine for me, but I am able to enforce one of those things, right? Like, I'm going to, if he chooses to do nothing and defy me, then I, get, I pick him up and I carry him downstairs. And I pretty much never have to do that because he knows, well, that's going to be the ultimate, uh, that's going to be the, the ultimate enforcement is he doesn't get a choice, but he likes to have a choice. And so they say, well, give him a choice of these two options and, but we know that in reality, Dean has three options. He has the, uh, he has, in reality, he has the choice, well, he can walk downstairs. He has the choice to get picked up by me. Or he has the choice to openly defy me, which then option two really becomes a punishment for option three. And so God, if, if he wants us to obey he has to give us real choices, right? And sure, there might be consequences to some of those choices, but we have to have the opportunity to disobey. If he only allows us to do good when there's actually no choice, right? Because we'd have to be able to choose the bad. So then comes the question, well, why did he give us free will? Free will is the only way that love is possible, if he didn't give us the ability to choose, then he didn't give us the ability to love him. Because the ability to love him has to come out of a choice. Otherwise, it's not actually love. He didn't want a robot. He, didn't want, he wanted us to love him. He wanted us to, be, to choose to be in communion with him, to receive his love. He wanted us to choose to love him so that he can love us. God gives us a choice to do good, he also gives us a choice to do evil. And he wants us to ultimately choose him. So, he has to allow us to sin. And so what does sin do? It leads to pain and suffering. Oftentimes our own, but our own sin can also lead to the pain and suffering of others, right? So, the, the struggle might be... It, God may not have caused the sin or caused the pain, but he allowed it to happen. 
And the thing is, he's always going to use it. He's always going to use that, that pain. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This verse is probably one of the worst verses to quote someone that's going through immediately immense pain. I've had it quoted to me, and it, and it didn't feel great. But on the other side of pain, like right, we can all see this truth. For those of us who believe in God, who trust in God, and walk with him, we can see how he's carried us through things, and we can see how he's brought good out of terrible situations. But you might be thinking, well, God... When are you going to hear the cries of my heart? If, if I'm in pain, if I'm in suffering right now, when are you going to hear the cries of my heart? Where are you in the middle of all this? You may feel like you're failing right now in, in life or in marriage or in your, your walk or with your job or, you know, whatever it is. But the reality is that sometimes God's preparation comes packaged as pain. Sometimes what he is trying to do in our lives, it comes through that, that suffering. And the pain in our lives is something that he's going to lead us to, that he's going to do through us something new. He may be using this pain in our lives now for growth and purpose that he would have for us in the future. And Peter, he was absolutely no stranger to this. Peter went through plenty of suffering on it, uh, of his own. A lot of it, you know, brought on by his own, his own rash actions or stubbornness. But regardless, a lot of his own suffering. In Matthew 16, Jesus said he's going to die and God's going to raise him from the dead. Basically lays out his whole mission, clearly defines his whole mission. And Peter goes, no, no, no. And, and rebukes him, rebukes Jesus as he lays this all out. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. I'm like, oh, man. Wouldn't want that on record. Jesus told me, get behind him, Satan. Matthew 26, Jesus is wrestling with his calling, and he, he goes off to pray and asks a, a few of his disciples to stay there and pray for him and stay, stay vigilant and awake. And Peter is one of those people, and what happens? Fall asleep. Once, twice, even three times? Matthew 26. And then John 18, Jesus, he's arrested by some soldiers. So this is like, you know, just after the, the uh, former story. Jesus is arrested by some soldiers, and Peter comes up. He takes a sword, and he swings at the guy's head and uh, lops off his ear. And so... He swings at his guy's ears on the ground, and they're like, all right, well, you know, where's the ear? Jesus put it, puts it back on. And then Luke, Luke 22, uh, Jesus, he, he tells the disciples that Satan's asked him to tempt them. He's asked them to, to put them through trials as wheat, and Jesus lets them, or lets Satan. But he says, but I'm going to pray for you. It's like, oh, great. So turn us over to Satan. But, you know, you're going to pray for us. All right. God didn't just cause it, or God didn't cause it, but he allowed it. 
And then, of course, Peter, he denies Jesus three times. And at the third betrayal, Peter and Jesus, they, they meet eyes. And Peter realizes what he's done. And then he goes off and says he wept bitterly. And the pain had to have felt like more than he could take. It had to have felt like, I'm such a failure. I've, I've left, I've let God down. I'm suppo- I haven't lived up to my potential. I, I'm a believer. I'm supposed to have all these fruits, like love, joy, peace, patience, how to do goodness, faithfulness, self-control. But I feel like I have nothing but anxiety and bitterness and anger and apathy. Where was God? Where was God amidst all that, those problems, my failures, my regrets, my pain? But there was a purpose, because sometimes God's preparation comes packaged as pain. Proverbs 27, 21 says, The crucible for silver and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. That's what Peter means when he says there's a fiery trial. In verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at this fiery, fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So our goal should be try not to see your life through your, the perspective of your pain, because we can get blinded by our pain, but try to see your pain through the perspective of, of your future and your purpose and your calling. God may be doing something in you so that he can eventually do something through you. In fact, Peter says something here, I hate, but he says it, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. He says rejoice. Like what, are you, are you crazy? James says the same thing. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Count it all joy. Don't love that. Like, I'm going to be honest. I don't love that. These authors say God is creating in you a persevering, a steadfast heart, which is easy to say, of course, when you're not going through those trials. In verse 15 to 16 in this uh, 1 Peter passage, it makes a distinction between uh, suffering because of your sin and suffering over your Christianity. It says if you suffer because of your sin, well, basically you get what you get. You deserve it. But if you suffer for Christ, you should be rejoicing in your suffering because God's working through that suffering for his kingdom, for his glory, and for your good. And sometimes his preparation comes packaged as pain. Your suffering, it could be refining you. It could be building something in you, something new, so that God can use it later on. Maybe he's, he's building in you a witness to others. Maybe he's, he's building in you the capacity to empathize with other people. But then there's suffering that may not fall into both of these categories of sin or martyrdom. martyrdom. And what do we do with that? Well, we see in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul boasts about his suffering and he lumps all that kind of suffering into it. Like, why would he brag about his shipwrecks? Why would he brag about his dangers from rivers or cities or bandits or the wilderness or whatever it was? He lists it a huge list. Why would he brag about these kind of neutral sufferings? Because when your ultimate goal is Christ... Everything that comes in the way, every obstacle becomes a trophy that we wear. 
right? Like Jesus talks about this. I believe it's in Luke, I think Luke 14. I didn't get to include this because not enough time. But he talks about it as like us being in a war. And it's like, well, yeah, well, if you're in a war, are you going to be like, oh, like you're running out off of the battle, be like, oh, they're shooting at me. They threw this thing at me, like, and it blew up. Like, no. Like, you're in a war. Peter says here in the very beginning, he's like, expect it to come. And feel blessed when it does come. And then Paul talks about, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how all this may even show his weaknesses, but in his weakness, it's God's strength. Because sometimes God's preparation comes packaged as pain. So Peter continues. So this next section called From God. So verses 17 to 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So Peter continues to talk about the refining fire. Earlier, he said that the, the trials are fiery. So this is what he's, he's return, referring to. Here he gives a picture of what, uh, that God has begun judging the church, and he's going to start it within the walls of the church and then spread out from there. And, and, and he, he talks about how the fire shouldn't consume us, but it should refine us. It's going to consume the people on the outside. And some scholars kind of suggest this should be read in light of Ezekiel chapter 9, which says, the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are, are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike, your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. So the, the messenger here puts a mark on the forehead of all those people who are sighing and groaning about the abominations that were happening in Israel. And it says that go through and kill all the people that don't have the mark on their forehead. All this should bring a realization. If we are the temple of God, then God resides in us. And if God resides in us, we should expect that refining fire to come. We're going to look at verse 19. Trust God. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter says here to trust God. God, that doesn't seem like much of an answer, I'm going to be honest, to all the suffering. And sometimes we can look through these philosophical arguments about suffering and how it refines us and moves us forward and all that kind of stuff, but I can't help look back at some of the suffering that I've been through and, and yeah, sure, maybe I understand what Romans 8.28 is saying, maybe I understand what James is saying, what Peter's saying, and yet when I look at the many things that, that I have gone through, seeing all the good even that has come from it, I can't help sometimes but selfishly wish that it didn't happen. And many of us might have questions like that. And maybe they aren't going to be answered here, but questions like, well, what about my spouse that beat me? What about my father that left me? Or my friend or family that died too early? And we may not have all those answers and we may not see the reason. I, I may never be able to tell you. No one may ever, ever be able to tell you. You may never see it. And we may never know this side of, of heaven. And that's why at, at any given moment, like the, the snapshot, a moment in your life when something s seems just unfair, 
It's easy to say that God isn't good. But think about not just in this moment, but when you walk with Jesus, when you rest in his word, when you trust in his presence, you let him comfort you in the middle of this grief, and somehow he gives you a peace that doesn't make any sense. You see his people, you see his church as flawed and as messed up as they are. You see them come around you, see them love you and support you and surround you. In that given moment, he may even still not feel good. But when you walk with him over a lifetime, you'll see his faithfulness, you'll see his goodness, you'll see his kingdom at work, you'll see his kingdom come, and you'll have no other, no other thought than the realization that, yes, God is good. And all the time, he is good. And sometimes, as verse 19 says, it's going to be in his will for us to suffer. Meanwhile, he's a plan for us. And if it's not to bring us closer to wholeness, this side of heaven, which it is, then he's laid out a hope for us in the end. He's shown us a picture of what life looks like at the end. Revelation 21.4 says, He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be for no more. There should be no more mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. In that moment, we might have that great pain. We might be wondering why, because people hate pain, right? People hate pain without purpose. What happens when you lose your job? You get in a wreck. You lose your house. You might think, I don't see the point. People don't hate pain. They hate pain without a purpose. People can actually endure a lot of pain. People will pay money to experience pain. You ever hear of someone running in a marathon or an Ironman? Yeah, dumb. Pain. But there's a sense of accomplishment, a sense of camaraderie, or, you know, you have acupuncture or working out. Like, I know people who brag about their pain working out all the time. People who go through rehab, like detoxing or anything like that, it's painful, but you, you go through it for the payoff. My wife inter- endured pain of childbirth. At least it looked painful. <laughs> but the end result, it, like, it's worth it probably. I, I've, had, I've had surgery on, on my shoulder, and it was painful. I threw up. I chose to do that, but I, my shoulder didn't work for like a month or more after. But there was a result that I was after. I was willing to go through the pain. People don't hate pain. They hate pain without a purpose. I wonder how many, to- how many of us are in a time where life is just painful or uncertain, But there's a purpose there. We may just not see it yet. 12 minutes, all right. Asaph, he continues. We're not going to live it over. All right, we'll apologize out there. All right. Asaph, he continues, Psalm 73. He says, When I try to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of a God, then I understood their final destiny. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless, senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You give me counsel, and afterward you will take me into your glory. 
He says he was consumed with his bitterness and he couldn't see God's plan. But in the end, he realized, well, God, you're calling me to something greater. And even though I may not experience all those blessings here right now, I have you. And when we have nothing else, we can trust in that. In the words of Peter, we trust in our faithful creator as we live in his will. But then Asaph reveals one last aspect of his suffering. God is going to use us to help others. That's literally what Asaph is is doing here in probably the purest sense. He's sharing his own suffering, both the beginning and the end, and that's what most of the Psalms are. It's this anguish over everything that's happening in the present and then praising God for what they have been brought through, through him. God's going to use our suffering to guide others through their suffering. Maybe we won't be in the Bible. Maybe we won't even write our own book, but we have people around us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're not going to read it out, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he has allowed us to go through pain and he's comforted us through those pains so that that comfort that we've received from God we can share with other people. He's brought us into and through these trials. He sent us his comfort. He's brought us billions of people before us who's shared in many of the same sufferings. And on the other side, we get to help those other people around us. Really quick, I want to look back at this story of Peter, Luke twenty-two thirty-one. It's Jesus saying, Simon, Simon, Satan asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. He says it right here. That Simon, you, Simon Peter, you may fail. You may turn your back on me. But when you return... I am going to use that. We have people around us who can empathize with us. And the one great sufferer who has gone through much worse than us, Jesus, he understands and he welcomes us in. We're going to end off with how then should we live. First off, draw near to God and draw near to God amidst your pain. Second, pray to see the purpose of your pain And lastly, comfort those around you. Would you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you that you uh, tell us, you'll you'll bring us through all of this and that you'll use this, this pain for your glory and our good. And I just pray that we would be able to see that, that you would give us the hope, even amidst trial, and that you would continue to use all of that for, for uh, the advancement of your kingdom and our greater good. I thank you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.